Hello and welcome to this episode of Mind the Gap, making education work across the globe with me, Tom Sherrington and Emma Turner. Hello, Emma. Hello, Tom. This is the second time we meet today. It's lovely to see you again. <laughs> yes, I know. It's like we live in this virtual world. It's crazy. And we are delighted to have with us Amabir Singh Gill. Singh, welcome to our, our, pod, our podcast. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, looking forward to, to like the next 40, 45 minutes. It's brilliant. Yeah, so people um, may find you on Twitter. You're one of those people who, a bit like me, who doesn't read your real name and your handle. So you're inspired learn. <laughs> That's correct. Yeah. And it's, it, which is which is you know in, which is a great handle for anyone to on Twitter. Inspired learn, fantastic. Um, which is really great. And of course, we work together on the Inaction series. Uh, and Emma is also an author in the Inaction series. So we're kind of part of that family. So quite a lot of what we want to talk to you about is about. Um, your work on the books that come, Emma. We can we can do this for the for the, for the YouTube. <laughs> I don't <laughs> have all You should have one as well. We're holding up the, the book. Donlowski strengthening the student toolbox in action. Oh look, he's disappeared. There you go. Here we go. Like three, two, go, one. Look. Entertainers. That's more like it. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it was it's so exciting because you know you had the idea to um, you know, essentially pitch that book. I mean, there are some other books in the series where. I asked people, you know, I was working through some papers and you said, hey, Tom, this would make a great inaction book. Can I, can I write that? And I was going, yeah, what a great idea. So just, just tell people a bit about, about that. You know, what, what was it that drew you to want, want to, you know, pitch to write that, that book and you did it so well? Um, yeah, so I came, I, I used to mentor uh, training and NQT teachers when I was in school. And one of my trainees was given the Rosenstein um, in action book uh and i uh asked their like uh training their school training provider uh if they had any spares because it looked like a really interesting book so um yeah they kindly gave me uh, uh one of the spare copies they had going um and it just sounded like it sounded like a great way to uh, bridge this gap between research and classroom practice um I found it like a really accessible book. Like, obviously, took took Rosenstein's ideas and gave them like practical application, like put it into like teacher talk, so to speak. Um, and so, I, and then I, I got into like other bits of the series from there. So, um, I read. I think I think uh, Ollie Lovells was next, and then um, uh, Mark Zoe Mark Edison's book was after that. Um, as I was like, oh. This this fits really nicely with this Donosky paper, uh, which I came across it was one of the first papers I got when I was on my masters, uh, and I thought oh, it just like, it just the two just marry up perfectly. So yeah, took took a shot, emailed uh, like Alex at, at John Cat, who I've never met before, and said, oh, like you know, I'm I'm me. Uh, what are your thoughts about me getting involved in this project? Um, uh, and it went from there. Like I'd I'd uh, been doing some writing for. Um, some of the EEF research scores at that point as well. So um, like that helped sort of lay some foundations, like uh, refine my thinking about like, what, what sort of language do I want to use and put it into. Um, so that's where it all sort of came from. Like uh, I was talking to someone else a little while ago, six, seven months ago, I was just like some teacher from Gravesend. Uh, and I'm still, I still am like some teacher from, from Gravesend in North Kent. <laughs> But now it's like, yeah, now it's, it's quite weird. I feel it's still surreal, like uh, having a, a book to my name. Well, it's, it's great. I mean, 
I have to say, no one is just some teacher from Gravesend. <laughs> You're right, a teacher from Gravesend. And it was it was cool because John Donoski, you spoke, you wrote, you contacted me, didn't you? And so that that was that was interesting. So what what was his response to someone writing a book about his paper? I, I'm really enthusiastic. Um, like, oh, we we uh, came up with a pitch and like a, a rough outline of the book. Um, I sent it across to him. Like he gave his thoughts on it. And, was fully supportive um ended up writing the foreword for it as well um uh, and so yeah like he sent me an email a little while ago saying he'd got his copy of it uh and was like proudly proudly placed on his bookshelf which uh, i think is a pretty big compliment so yeah i'm, I'm definitely happy with that uh, but yeah he was a massive supporter of it from from uh Eddie days no that's great so you're a big fan of, you're a big fan of donoski as well aren't you Emma? well do you know what <laughs> yes I, when this only arrived yesterday, my copy did, and I sat down and I genuinely thought I was going to have to spend hours and hours digesting it. You have explained this so beautifully, saying it's so easy to read, so straightforward, and it's not necessarily really straightforward content, but you have made it so accessible and so that I kind of whizzed through it and thought this is absolutely brilliant. So I, I really, really, really loved it. And the bit that jumped out for me is not necessarily Dolosky's bit. It's the it's the quote that you top and tail the book with, the one about the tree and the roots and the branches. I'd just really like to hear you explain why that particular quote, even though it's not Dolosky's, it kind of tops and tails the, the book really. Um so I um it's a great question actually. Like I've never I've never had anyone ask that question before. Um I've never had to think as deeply as I think I probably am now. Um I wanted to like it was important for me to to acknowledge um like my roots and like where where I come from, uh like the, the sort of life I'm I'm like lucky enough to live right now. Um, and so this was like part of my way of acknowledging like my background, my my, my culture, my religion, um, but also like it, it wasn't just like a like, superfluous thing. Um, the point I was trying to make was quite often in in, in teaching and education, uh, we get sold the like fruits of the tree as if they're independent from the tree. Like we can enjoy the fruits mm-hmm. without having to like nurture and, and like raise this tree and, and, and do all this like heavy lifting. Um, and like it's, it's captivating for reasons like you know, teachers, schools are time and resource poor. But actually, like that, that process of growing the tree is really important in being able to enjoy those fruits. So I wanted people to have that in mind as they were going through the book and like get to the end and then still say like these ideas are, are, are really good, but these are these are potentially the fruits. Make make sure we're appreciating the tree where it's come from as well. So let's just for people who, who don't know it's just I'm just going to read it out. And the, the 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 English version is when the tree is cut off at its roots, the branches wither and die. But how do you, how do you say the the what language is it in that you've written it in here? So yeah, it's from originally from um, Gurmukhi, uh, which is like um, like the the written script of Punjabi. Uh, is is original format is Bed Manahu Katiye This Dalasukande. Which translate roughly as when the tree is cut off at its roots, the branches wither and die. So it's it's all about fundamentals, and isn't it? I mean, it's that that's essentially what we're talking about. We're talking about fundamental ideas about learning, and um, and I, and and that's 
you know, that, that's what Donosky is really, you know, rooted in, in his thinking. But we, we had a discussion, I found it so interesting that one, one, of the, so, one of the things that's so refreshing about the Donosky paper that you bring alive in your book is that it's not like, you know, here's, here's the theory, this is how you implement it. He's saying, here's a whole bunch of theories. Yeah. Let's, let's test them out. And you know what? Some of them are more use, useful than others. And people, here's some techniques which are actually not very effective. And it's that kind of evaluative aspect, which is the, the strong contenders and the middle ones and the ones which are a bit, and even then, there's some value in them. So that 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 was interesting. That, that that need to kind of almost demonstrate that ideas have different weightings, and it's not just about good ones and bad ones. There's a kind of scale of impact. And so, what what was your sense of that? And for people who don't really know, what what just tell people straight. You know, what are the strong contenders? What are the good? <laughs> So, so yeah. So, like one of the conversations that that uh, like John Delusky and I had was about like, the intentional use of his language uh, of the word like effectiveness. So he's placed these techniques on like a spectrum of effectiveness, is what I've described them in, on um, in the book. So there's more effective and less effective. Like there was intentional avoidance of using good and bad because there's so many things that can impact. The effectiveness of a given strategy. So some of those less effective ones might actually be more effective. So something like summarization, for example, is a the person is really skilled at summarizing. Uh, B the 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 content is um, particularly amenable to being summarized as well. So if I'm working in maths or physics, like it's probably not as applicable. But if you're doing history, English, like one of the more written subjects, it's it's probably a good strategy to use or more effective one. But overall, what they said was that space practice uh, and retrieval practice testing were the, the two most effective, more effective, I think is the language, the two more effective strategies out of all the 10 that they tested. Mm. Were you surprised by any of them? Were you surprised yeah. by any of the, the ordering of them? Yeah, yeah, like su summarisation 100%. Because I think it's something that... We, we, the vast majority of people do all the time as a way to study. And I, I remember I did it when I was at uni. Uh, I've done it since when I'm studying. I do it all when I talk to other teachers. Um, and I did a physics degree. So I'm like, my degree is physics, but I still would summarize my lecture notes. Uh, it was like a technique I used. And so, uh, and I remember reading Zoe and Mark Ince's book. And it's one of the techniques that like is found to be quite effective in. in um, the paper that they discussed from uh, Furo Lemaire. And so that was the one where I was like, oh, I really need to be careful about this. And uh, I think I think in that chapter, I front-noted it, saying, like, don't, don't, like, don't shoot the messenger yet. Like, <laughs> this, this, this isn't a bad technique. You just need to be careful about it. Yeah. I think one of the things I really like about the paper and about your book is it not only explains the technique, but it, it constantly reinforces the kind of horses for courses narrative. Like, this might work in this situation but be mindful it might not work there. And I think that's sometimes what's missing from some of the, oh, here's the research, is that, but just hang on, it doesn't work everywhere, I think. So I, I really enjoyed that one. And my yeah. favourite quote in the whole book is the one about, you might have sort of given him a paintbrush when you're talking about the life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's funny because, like, every teacher will be able to picture a specific student and say, oh, yeah, like, that they, they should have just given the paintbrush. <laughs> yeah. 
I've got that bit, if you haven't read it, is the bit where you're talking about the effectiveness or, or otherwise of highlighting parts of what you've read and what you've learned and might as well have given him a paintbrush. That, that is a common one, isn't it? I mean, that's one of those ones where, you know, and, and, and this is where he starts off the whole premise of the paper, is that like your average student will think they're studying and they've got their biology exam or whatever, but what do they actually do? And, you know, getting your highlighter out is a sort of soft thing to do because it... <laughs> As he says, you know, essentially you're sort of highlighting stuff, therefore not highlighting the other stuff, which might be also important. And it doesn't mean you necessarily have thought about it or made any extra connections. You've just sort of almost eliminated. So it's actually quite a poor strategy unless you use the bits you've highlighted to then do some thinking with or whatever. Um, And because your average student doesn't. No. no. They have a a multicoloured... thing yeah. and w wh smith would sell a, a whole lot fewer kind of you know yellow and pink <laughs> fluorescent highlighters yeah 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 and I, mm. I, I think the thing with stuff uh like highlighting is it makes you feel like you've learned loads because there's a finished product right like your your book will be covered in highlights and you'll say like wow like i've done so much whereas like space practice or practice testing like you don't really have much to show for it it doesn't it doesn't give you that feel good feeling at the end of it uh where something like highlighting rereading like like, like surprised like you remember everything you just highlighted like it makes you feel really good you say, also, you know, what, what? i was going to say as well as a teacher um you'd kind of want them to remember pretty much everything you gave them anyway so if you're giving them a really high quality piece of text or a diagram or something that you want them to learn they need to highlight the whole thing because they need to remember the whole thing so it's a nonsense strategy or or, unless you've given them well this one isn't very good it's a bit shoddy just pick out the bits that are are good things to remember yeah exactly so so as a teacher you sort of you need to be so conscious of the fact that um you know the way that people are trying to learn things is needs to have this sort of generative element to it, which is what the Fiorella and Mayer book is doing. But, you know, and summarising, I feel like, I remember talking to Alex Quigley about this in terms of reading, that they sort of summarising and elaboration are sort of both, they almost need to go together. So if you summarised something into some notes, you then need to expand from the summary to check you still can hold on to all the rest of it. So it only really works as a kind of, it, 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 well, it doesn't only really work. That's that's not very scientific of me, but it sort of works well. If you're sort of saying, let's let's summarise it into some stuff I can kind of carry, but then can I expand from that back out and the kind of so my schema for it is actually quite rich. But I've just the process of summarising has helped me emphasise the key parts, and that's why it's so interesting, isn't it? Like these ideas aren't sort of neat; they they have a kind of dynamic to them. So have you found this like in your work? I mean, you're a math specialist. So how how have you found that this type of thing translates into specific actions that teachers can use? Which of those things from the, from the strengthening toolbox would you say, as a maths teacher, that this is like this is what I found really helped me or, or my colleagues? Um, I remember the first time I read the paper. It was the first ever time I'd been exposed to the idea of interleaving, and I could just stop because the example given in the paper was about. Um, prisms and properties of prisms and like all, all math stuff and I I get I get really excited when we talk about math so I'll try and like be calm for now. Um but I like really it really it really like just struck a chord with me. And so uh like I did the normal thing which was like I read the paper and then Monday morning I tried it in my classroom 
<laughs> it just went terribly. It was just, just atrocious. I've one of the worst lessons I've taught in my life. Uh, I'd, I'd mixed up random topics. I'd uh, essentially confused kids more than, more than anything. Um, and so that one, that, like, that's been a real passion for me because it's such a hard idea to, to like, A, understand and B, apply. And they're two very different things. But I think it's got such a massive application in, in a subject like maths, where there's so many um, concepts that are very, very similar on the surface, but re- require a completely different understanding. And that's where interleaving generally has its most potential. So that was the one where e- even now I, I, I have conversations with colleagues, even in my work ambition, um, about what does interleaving look like? Why why does it work? How can we incorporate it into what we do? Should we incorporate it in what we do? Because is it actually fit for purpose? Um, so that was the, 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 the big one for me, for sure, for sure. You're listening to Mind the Gap, presented by John Cat Educational. Over the past six decades, John Cat has supported teachers and school leaders with research-based, easy-to-use professional development books for the entire faculty. Visit us.johncatbookshop.com in the United States or at johncatbookshop.com or elsewhere across the globe to find the latest titles. Really That's interesting, interesting. because the, the old national strategies for primary, the sequencing of their curriculum and their lesson sequencing was based very much on interleaving, but it wasn't called interleaving. And I still to this day don't know whether that was a deliberate decision by the strategies and they were doing that or whether it was just chance but that was the guidance that we were given as well when we were to teach and to sequence our maths teaching was to include this idea of interleaving different topics or related topics through that and it's and it was only when I started to read about interleaving I was like oh that's that's what we're doing (laughs) so it's really it's really interesting and and so there is actually a lot of unofficial evidence that it that it was actually quite effective but I don't think anybody ever measured it through that lens of interleaving, but everyone was doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think that's one of the problems because what what I understand by interleaving, or like the word interleaving just has so many different connotations. Like I would understand it differently to someone else, to someone else. And so, um, and, the, and the research, I think, means something really specific, but um, I, I don't think <laughs> like academic research does a particularly good job of communicating what they mean, what they're interleaving, yeah. and particularly what it looks like in the classroom. I think like, they, like there's loads of experiments about it, but I think to like, figure out what this would look like in my classroom for my subject is something that's not really being looked at. Like, mm-hmm. and, and, and like for example, where you say potentially it has, it, it's not been called interleaving, so we haven't been able to mm-hmm. make those those connections. Yeah. Exactly. I suppose it's a bit like, you know, I think, I mean, this is why I do feel it's like a, I mean, I only know some very specific studies like the, the Robert and Elizabeth Bjork's uh, stuff where in Desirable Difficulties, where one of the interleaving papers, which I've read, is about um, students remembering butterfly categories. Yeah. And you've got a whole pile of photographs of butterflies and they have to sort of learn them. And, and so you've got sort of photographs of this very specific type of butterfly and you study that, that's this type um, or species. Here's some other photographs of those. And then here's, and then 
And then they do experiments where the students sort of blocked, blocked, learnt one chunk and then another and another and then tested them later versus what if we mix up all the butterflies and are constantly saying which types that was. And, and the, 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 the interleaving people um, do better. But the effect of the interleaving is actually sort of much smaller just by spacing. So if you, if you, whichever type of study you do, if you do it again a bit later um, and space it, you, you, the effect of the whether you interleaved or blocked is, is actually quite small compared with the fact that you repeatedly did it and spaced it. So it's like all these things are like <laughs> quite complicated. Yeah, and that's yeah. just remembering something measure, very measurable, like how, how many did you get right on identifying the butterflies? But do you think it means this, like in maths? We're all maths geeks here, aren't we? Um, <laughs> yeah. Like if you're doing, if you're doing, you know, prisms, and and like you, you've got the you've got the area of the shape at the end, and then you and then a length, like, and you've got and that could be a triangle, so it could be an area of a triangle, and then, but then another time you're doing area of a circle, you might do a whole unit on the area of a circle, but then when you're doing it as a volume, and then prism volume, and then you're interleaving this sort of the areas of all the shapes and then the idea of volume. And it's a kind of like you, you can't sort of suddenly teach area of a circle of a sudden. You've got to have taught area of a circle and later you mix in with the idea of volume and the kind of a prism. Is that, do you think that, is that, is that interleaving? Um, I, 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 don't, I don't know. Like, I think it's a good question. Like, I don't know. But that, I think in and of itself, I, like those are the sorts of conversations I would love for maths departments across the country to be having. Like, I think they're really, really valuable conversations. And understanding that if we if we do interleaving, I and mean, if it is interleaving, like, students are more likely to get things wrong, but like, that's okay. Because what so another thing that came out from the research was the types of errors that students made. So the performance um, when they were interleaving was was worse than when they were blocking the short-term performance. But what they found was that the students who interleave, when they made mistakes, they weren't content errors. They were like careless errors. They just forgot to make some calculation mistakes. And when they pushed them and said, like, explain this, they could, they, they, they could um, explain what mistake they had made much better than the students who, whose practice was blocked. So uh, uh, the answer is I don't know. Like, I've taken a bit of a segue to uh, try and hide that. But like, look, it's a really valuable conversation. Um, yeah. Because those are sort of things that like kids will mix up how to find the area of different prisms. Kids will mix up how to find the area of different uh, polygons, different shapes in general. Even within it, kids will mix up area and parameter all the time. So the question is, well, what what do kids mix up? And that that's where interleaving, like, the potential interleaving lies, like separating out and being really explicit about like, this is what you're mixing up. So let's let's go beyond the surface features of this thing to really understand what, what's the underlying feature. So what makes this a cylinder and not a uh, triangular prism? What makes this an area question and not a volume question or an area question and not a perimeter question? That, that's what we want to draw students' attention to. It's like constantly looping back and forward between the things you've done before. It's like a, it's like petals of a flower, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Coming I back and linking, linking it all together. <laughs> yeah, you can have I, that I, on I, I have a question, right, Tom? I have a question. Why is it always butterflies? Austin's <laughs> butterflies, Bjorn's butterflies. 
why butterflies? That's what I want to know. <laughs> because they're, yeah. they're beautiful uh, things with <laughs> symmetry and to different species. I don't know. We're, they, we're, we're drawn to them. Um, the butterfly effect. But, you know, one of, one, of, one of the things I love is all these ideas connect. So in our previous episode of, of Mind the Gap, very early on, we talked to, um, we spoke to Mark McCourt about maths. And, you know, he, he has some really amazing ideas. Like one of, one of his ideas is this idea of um, sort of looking back at what you've learned with fresh eyes. So, for example, when, when, you, when you learn, um, you know, one plus X, one over X plus one over Y can be solved because you can use algebra. That then makes sense of all the times you've just been doing a half plus a third, and because you see that you see that a half plus a third as a specific example of one over x plus one over y, and so you're you reevaluating your understanding of the pattern that you made with your common denominator through this sort of generalized thing, and so, and I love this idea of sort of maturation in maths that over time you mm. you get more and more sophisticated in your understanding because you're constantly looking back over everything you've learned so far. And and linking it up, and for me, that's one of the most beautiful things about maths. So like like for example, how a sine a sine curve is drawn out, that, that, that like yeah, we exactly. around, yeah, it creates creates a circle. You know, it's like a circle spinning, and like the the properties of sine and cosine compared with just circles. It's like wow, like when you make that link, it's like how cool is that? It's just really that's exciting, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, you're. Uh, yeah, you're tempting me now to like go off on a proper maths maths tangent. Um, but uh, like, yeah, for, for all those reasons, like, my friends and I would laugh when we were at university that we're doing like, we're doing like, like, maths modules in our physics, and I can't, we couldn't remember the last time we've written numbers. Like, I think maths is one of those like is a subject where you're just constantly getting more and more abstract, and when you finally understand these like really complex abstract concepts. And you see like all the concrete ones that have been building, you're like, oh my gosh, like, you know, the, the whole of all of my life now makes sense. <laughs> yeah, this all a revelation. <laughs> so yeah, and that's that's ultimately what we want to achieve, isn't it? Like this this complex, deep, abstract understanding. Because that's what's applicable to all of these concrete con- contexts that uh, we've we've built students up from. It says in natural curriculum, doesn't it, though, to appreciate the inherent beauty of mathematics. It says in the purpose of maths, and you can't appreciate the inherent beauty of mathematics if you've not secured that procedural fluency first so that you can actually go, whoa, now, yeah. <laughs> now, now let me have a look at it. But, yeah. I'm still stuck on the flower because you, know, you know you said about um, uh, they make more mistakes with interleaving. I'm now on the flower going, he learns it, he learns it not. He learns <laughs> it, he learns it. <laughs> That's very good. I've got out my answer. Still, that energy from you. I'll be honest. You heard it here. One of my, I have this sort of bank of like lessons that my children learned at school. The things that stick out to me that they brought home that we talked about. You know, and one of them was my son's first maths lesson in secondary school, where the teacher blew his mind by talking about the number one, and they talked about whether one was. Like if you count on your fingers, one, two, three, is that the same one as when you're sort of saying one pound is one penny more than 99p or um, three divided by three is one each? Is that the same one? And it, all of that, like, is one a size, a scale? Does it? Can you touch it? Is it a physical entity? It's like, <laughs> whoa. Like, you never really thought of it question. that way. It says, is, is a number a noun or is it an adjective? And if it's a noun, what is it? 
This, this so, is where you're testing my, my English subject knowledge. No, uh, so for example, is is a noun <laughs> is is a number a thing like it's it's three, or is it an adjective where it's only used to describe something else, like three apples or three bananas? But if it is a noun, if it's three, what is the thing? Is three three because it's one less than four, or is it is three three because it's double one point five? So what makes three a noun? And is and if we're teaching maths, we should teach number as a noun not number as an adjective, because we should know the properties of that number and how it relates to everything else, not just use it as a descriptor for something else, which I thought was a really interesting take oh, on just, it. We're, we're, losing, we're losing our non-maths listeners at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd be gaining them somewhat. I don't think Maybe. Have, but yeah, that's explained to us in, in a way like that. Like, yeah, I'm going to have a sleep but, tonight. I, I'm going to ask you something else. So else now saying now one one of the things that um you know I know about you is that you work full time now for the Ambition Institute and when you're engaging with you know Twitter and you go to research ed and you're just engaged in the, the world of education Ambition Institute you hear about it all the time and it feels I feel like yeah what another person works for Ambition Institute or there well that's also by Ambition Institute and I just think well are you guys taking over the universe or something like what what is it you know. <laughs> So for people who don't know what Ambition Institute is, you know, what, what is it? Tell people. What... Yeah, so um, Ambition Institute is a national charity. We work with uh, schools and teachers to, to help um, teachers to keep getting better. That, that's our uh, mission statement is to, to help teachers to keep getting better. So we've run loads of different courses. Um, we work on the MPQs, uh, the new suite of MPQs that have come out. We work on the early career framework. Um, and we also offer some more uh, niche programs. So we offer masters in expert teaching. That's the one I, I, I was in the pilot cohort for that back in 2018, and um, now coach on it uh, as part of my work with Ambition. Um, and we offer programs for schools like Transforming Teaching as well, which is a, a whole school-wide program. So we have loads of different ways in which we're trying to improve the educational outcomes for students that that you know our teachers work with. So what does that involve really? for you? So what do you do every day? What do I do every day? My, oh, really question. So like 80% of my time is, is working on our master's programme. So um, our master's is, is very different to sort of traditional university-based masters. Um, our teachers will, will turn up at the start of the module, spend two days delving into theory around a, a, a particular uh, problem of teaching or teaching and learning that we face so like, how do we get students to remember stuff how do we get students to um like taking the information we're giving them how can we accurately tell what students do and don't know we frame it like that um and then they spend the next terms the two half terms rigorously going into the research and, and testing stuff in their classrooms around uh, so like my, my interviewing for example that was the one i did uh, when i started the masters um, it made for an interesting reading because they got it, I got it all wrong, uh, which is like, <laughs> interesting, but you know, part of the process. Um, so that's like that's the majority of my work. We also are running a, a, an early career framework maths pilot, um, and so I do some design and delivery work on that. Um, so specifically for maths, uh, ECTs, and mentors, um, and so yeah, early days in that. Our goal is to be able to roll out more subject-specific stuff to, to support the teachers and students that they work with. 
are the are the subject specific ones just secondary? Is it just keto three onwards? So at the moment, this is like the first one that we're trying. Mass pilots is the very first to figure out the sort of impact that we might have. Our goal is like potentially not to take over the universe, but like our goal is to try and um, like roll 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 out uh, with a view to rolling out more subject and phase specific stuff, depending on how this first one goes. Like we, we think we're in a good place with it. We think we've got um, like a really good base of knowledge and, and people that we're working with to be able to support or better support uh, the trainers and mentors working in a mass context. So we'll, we'll road test it, review it, and then, yeah, our goal is to ultimately um, yeah, be able to offer a bit more uh, specialised support like in the long term. Mm. Well, your book is an absolute cracker for ECTs <laughs> because it explains so much of that, uh, of the... Um, a couple of the strands in the ECF about about the model of memory and everything. It's so succinct. And you can tell from reading it that you work with early career teachers because <laughs> it's written in such an accessible way for people who may be you know, interacting for the first time or relatively early on in their reading of it. You can really see that you work in teacher training because it reads beautifully. You're a kind of ECT you know, expert. I mean, I know you can recite it in your sleep because it's... <laughs> You know, it's like, it's like a, you, you're constantly, it's, it's, it's poetry. It's testing got into that, yeah. Like, here we go. Oh, my God, we welcome So do you think this is a good move then to to make, the, to, to weave subject specialism into what is a generic uh, framework? Do you think that's I, a good move? I, I genuinely, genuinely, can't speak, genuinely would welcome it because I think, um, as ambitious as the early career framework was in trying to get everybody to have access to the bare bones, basically, I think that the where it was a bit wide of the mark was, was recognising that people's individual subjects and phases are specialist in themselves. And so you do need to supplement or top up or come from a slightly different angle to make that the most impactful it can be. I mean, it's, it's very difficult as a trainer in a room full of people when you're doing ECF, when you've got early early years colleagues and post-16. It's it's really hard. So it does need a specialist angle on it. Maybe not all of it, but definitely a supplement to it or a or a different different look at it. Yes, of course, definitely. <laughs> is that what your findings thing? Is it is it like making more sense to you doing it in that way? Um our goal is yeah to, to try and address some of the. Uh, I think the difficulty has been what what is we've got some broad principles that we want ECT to be able to like know and, and, and take into the teaching. How can we support them in that process? Like, how how can we support them in seeing this like, knowledge and this and this like, broad understanding of uh, some of the principles behind effective teaching? And apply it, and get them. Sorry, help them to apply it in in their very like specific context. And so, like we're hoping that this pilot is like the first step on the way to trying to, to bridge that gap. Mm. I think it's adding another level of complexity. If the person explaining it is giving you an example that's not in your subject and not in your phase, and you mm. are novice, and then trying to make that leap and that link from this is what it looks like in this context to this is what it's look like in mine when you're novice in it so I think that having that start of 
being taught by or having included expert in your phase or your subject is hugely helpful for for the EC for the ECT as well. They're not having to make that leap in how might this look. They've actually got a concrete example to work from. Yeah. It's interesting because it's like it's obviously both, isn't it? So I mean, I, I observe lots of teachers, and even I think it goes beyond early career teachers, where you know half the time when you're discussing something with a teacher, you're saying it's a curriculum thing. It's it's the specific questions or the nature of the the content of the material, and it's very specific to that. But other times, it's nothing. It's something you could be talking to any teachers about behaviour management or questioning. Also, so. We always have that, that that interface for all of us. It's just that when you're an early career teacher, the learning curve is huge on both fronts, and so you yeah, have to absolutely. kind of like like pick it out, don't you? Absolutely. And I liken it to the fact that when we demonstrate in primary, they're not one of the things we tell ECTs not never to do is don't demonstrate with one thing or one piece of equipment, and then expect the children to go away and solve the problem with a different bit. So don't demonstrate with a number line, yeah. and then expect them to go and use cubes or vice versa. But ironically, that's what the ECF was doing in some cases. We'll give you the example in secondary science, but your primary now go work it out in your context. Yeah. So it was like flying in the face. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> that's yeah, another conversation for another day. There's something else I want to ask you about, Singh. It's like, it, it, because um, I, I, I've got in my hands, this is one of my collection. I, I've got a nerdy collection oh, of research yeah. brochures. Um, I... I'm going to make a bold claim, which is I think I've been to more research sheds than anyone. <laughs> so, I would have yeah, it. <laughs> I, I think I think the one the last one was the fortieth one I've been to. So if someone else has been to more than forty, come on, let's hear it. Hear it. <laughs> um, and you were at the last one, the National Conference at Parliament Hill in London, and your your session I was really really fascinated by this. You, you're, you're talking about learning versus performance. I was thinking, why aren't you doing Dolosky? <laughs> Yeah. But you, so what was that? What was that? That's such an interesting area. What what was the thrust of what you were saying to people about the learning versus performance? So, um, one one of the things that uh, I think I, t- I took away from Donosky's uh, paper and, and from the process of writing the book is why why do students uh, choose and use poor study strategies, and, and sometimes why do teachers? Not not see that difference as well. Like, what what makes something uh, effective study strategy versus something not effective? Uh, we spoke earlier about how highlighting makes kids feel really good. They feel like they've done loads. They have a concrete uh, product of their efforts. Uh, they can magically recall everything. But the research suggests that in the in the long run, uh, that that initial really high performance is very misleading, and actually something that's much harder initially, something like practice testing, will lead to better long-term benefits. And so um, I wanted to sort of go into the underpinnings of Dolosky's work and, and, and the research in the, from the book as well and frame it around uh, two questions. Firstly, what does this mean for us as teachers? What does it mean if you know a student can get a question right at the end of our lesson but can't get it right the next week when we quiz them on it? Or... Um, if they are struggling with this potentially similar concepts, like the, the idea of area perimeter, if they're struggling to recognise when I'm using the area equation, when I'm using the perimeter equation, but like the next next time round, they can articulate it quite well. What, what are the reasons for this? And 
why do students choose and use core study strategies? So that was a sort of framing for a session. So I chose to go down this road of, of learning versus performance. It was like Donoski based, but I wanted to take sort of a, like a deep dive into, into some of the like underpinnings of his research. Well, that's so interesting. Now, the, the example of that which plagues me, I feel like I'm scarred by it, is um, T, T squared, like teaching sort of like lower attaining students in maths in year 10, uh, who, who when you're doing practice and, and you, you think, oh, we're getting this, they get squares, cubes, indices, you know, generally, great, well done, seven squared is 49, rocking it, <laughs> and then test. Seven squared is fourteen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Why? Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 What you? What's happened to you? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's the thing. Like it happens all the time. Right? It's one of those things where uh, when someone else says it, you're like, "Oh my god, yes!" Like I, like, when you said, "Oh, when you get to a test," I immediately knew the answer was going to be fourteen. Like, I immediately knew there was nothing <laughs> going to be right. Like because it's just so common. It happens all the time. And so that was one of the things. Was like. This happens to all the all teachers all the time. It's such a common experience. Why? Why does it keep happening? So that's that was where that sort of uh, yeah talk came from. Um, yes. Have you read Mark McCourt's chapter on near far transfer? Uh, I haven't. I haven't had a chance to yet. Oh, no. that's beautiful. That links perfectly with what you're saying. It's it's a chapter I go back to all the time about performance versus learning and near far transfer. That's that's your professional reading for the next. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, it's it's my most well done chapter. But every time I hear him talk about near far transfer, all I can hear is Celine Dion saying near far wherever you are. <laughs> 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 so when I'm explaining nice. it now, that's, that's what that's I'm going to Yeah, sometimes I'm so troubled by the way your mind works. It, it's. it's I know. <laughs> But you try living in it, Tom. Just try living. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I mean, we're, it's funny. But it, it, it's, I, I see this. Is sort of, I love all these connections. So we get the privilege of talking to lots of different people. I mean, and and the connections you can hear them. So one of Mark's things is recency and cue, and for me, that's like a really a genius way of dealing with learning versus performance. So recency, you have to you have to be conscious that because I've just shown you, um, it, you can use your working memory but i need to sort of break away from recency and start saying like can you still do it and even you know, like 10 minutes like let's show you now like come back to something 10 minutes 20 minutes and that that little hump of getting over that uh, really short-term thing uh, and then obviously the next lesson you t- the further away you get from it recently having learned something the more difficult it is and the other one is cute so and to me that was a lovely idea that and you you basically have this in your in your book on on sectional interleaving where you've got a whole bunch of fractions and yes, sometimes yeah. they multiply sometimes they add sometimes they're, they're they're subtraction and they're not all saying these are multiply questions so they're not queued and and yes. that is so in a way the 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 queue and the interleaving are kind of they're connected ideas aren't they yeah yeah absolutely so um well if 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 kids just have like, 10 addition questions, 10 subtraction, multiplication, division. What they would do is think fairly hard for the first two and then just realise the next eight were exactly the same principle. And so they're not really they're not really thinking about well, what makes this an addition question 
And what makes that a subtraction question? They're just doing some number crunching. Whereas in, if you mix them all up randomly, each time they're having to like think really hard about what question they are and then link whatever cue they've got from the question to the appropriate learning from, from their memory and then execute it. So the cue is there, but they have to really understand what is this cue for? Which, which memory do I choose? So each time they choose that memory, they're strengthening the link between that cue and that memory. Mm. They're the one we do in primaries. You give them a set of worded problems. And the classic one was they didn't read the words at all. They just looked for the two numbers and added them yeah. together or subtract from yeah. whatever it was. So what we bypass that by is, okay, here's 12 questions. Only solve the ones that are addition questions. Or only solve the ones that are that are addition questions that involve bridging or addition questions that involve partitioning. So they're having to constantly refer back to everything they know and then only do the ones which match whatever strategy that we're looking at. So it, it's possible to do it with very, very young children as well to, yeah. to draw on all of those other little bits that they're learning at the same time. I, I, I love this sort of conversation. Like I love, especially that primary, I'm really lucky in my role ambition. It's the first time I've really been exposed to primary colleagues. Uh, and like the, the world of primary maths, I just find it's like fascinating. Like to have like that conversation, like of, of like what you just shared, Emma. Like it's it's amazing like the, the fact we're doing this with like really young children stretching in this way. Uh, yeah, I absolutely love this conversations. Seeing you and I, I, I need to go and go for a drink. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. I like that thing you just said being being exposed to primary colleagues. Like, yeah, that's it's like 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 they're radiation or something. <laughs> <laughs> they're having an impact they're radiating <laughs> we out do there. have a, we do have a very specific energy let's put it <laughs> that is a beautiful way you know what i i actually think because we're, we're we're nodding up at the time here, i i'm going to wrap up this episode on the idea of primary colleagues radiating beautiful energy through <laughs> through to seeing and this colleague's ambition yeah. well look, honestly <laughs> It's, it's so lovely to talk to you. You're such a great enthusiast. I, lo I love this whole thing of, like, you know, you started off by talking about how you were just like a, a regular teacher from Gravesend or whatever. But yeah, you're not. You're, you're not. There's no regular about about that. And also, it's just brilliant the way you're sort of coming in to share all these ideas and all these different ways you're doing it. It's brilliant. So thank you so much. It's a real inspiration. Um, inspired you. Learn. There you go. It's That's why it's you You have the right <laughs> Twitter. So but thanks very much, Singh. Thanks for being on our, on our show. Thanks for having me, guys. We really appreciate it. Oh, it's lovely to meet you. Thank you. Likewise. Thank and you. Thank you, everyone listening. We've we've been having a great run recently, and um, we're slightly blown away by the fact that we're we're sort of getting like nearly two thousand listens per episode. <laughs> we're told, which is just crazy. So, thank you so much for watching the, the YouTube and listening uh, on on the platforms for your podcast. Thanks for listening to Mind the Gap, making education work across the globe with me, Tom Sherrington, and Emma. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Mind the Gap. We hope you enjoyed hearing what's on our minds today. For much more great content, make sure to check out the video version of our show, which includes additional segments and features. Visit edcircuit.com or go to YouTube and subscribe to our channel, Mind the Gap with Tom and Emma. See you next time.